0: Welcome to Unlocking Us. I'm Brene Brown, and I am so glad to be back, y'all. I missed the podcast. I missed you. You know, I don't know if it's weird or not, but when I record the podcast, I feel like we're walking together, or I was going to say running together, or you're running, and I'm walking fast behind you, trying to catch you, or I'm in the car with you, or I'm in your ears on, you know in the park, or while you're doing folding laundry, I just feel like I'm with you. So I've missed that connection. I've missed you, and I've missed talking to you. Today, we're going to talk about day two, one of my most favorite things to talk about and least favorite things to actually navigate and to struggle through. So day two today.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's s y l v a n 29.com.
0: I have to say that it is very ironic that the first podcast of season 1 was about FFTs, F and first times, like, you know, our first time in a pandemic, our first time teaching online our first time learning online, our first time learning how to work with toddlers crawling up our backs while we're on Zoom. You know what it's like to be in a first time and how hard those times are, especially when we don't talk about them. But if we deconstruct them, we can make them better. Well, this is the first podcast of season two and the topic today is not FFTs or F and first times. The topic today is day two for better or worse, I think we're smack dab in the middle of day two. And day two is no joke, y'all. It's even, I think, trickier than the beginning. I think it's even trickier than that first step of our FFTs. But just like how understanding the FFT and breaking it down is really helpful, understanding day two, really helps. And it also kind of normalizes what we're feeling. So let me tell you about day two and how it got its name. For many years, we had a training program for therapists and helping professionals. We don't have it anymore, because now the majority of graduate programs include content on shame and shame resilience and vulnerability in their curricula, um, which was actually not the case. It really just was not people did not talk about shame you know, 10 years ago, maybe not even five years ago, but we're talking about it more and more. And so we don't have this training program anymore. But for years, this is how we brought therapists, counselors um, into our work. So the trainings were three day intensives. And let me tell you, day two of these three day trainings sucked. I mean, sucked. So, not only in terms of the curriculum, day two meant that we were moving into some of the really tough content like shame and and worthiness, but people were also kind of feeling raw. You know, the first day of anything, like the first day of school, the first day of a training, the first day of your work, you're like, I get the badge and everything's shiny and everything feels like a new undertaking and there's a sparkle of possibility. By day two, this is dulled. and now you're kind of in this dense fog where you don't have the shiny possibility of day one or the running toward the finish line of day three. It's like hitting the wall. The wall, if you, if you know the wall, if you're a runner or an athlete of any kind, like if you know the wall, the wall is in day two. So here we are in day two in this, these trainings, people are tired. And, you know, within the groups, like this is, we're doing a lot of small group work. Not only do we have the day two of it for us personally, um, within our groups, we're also hitting the rocky part of, have y'all heard of form, storm, norm, and perform? It's from researcher Bruce Tuckman, you know, he studies group dynamics, and he describes that when a group or team comes together and forms... Then it's often rocky for a time while members figure out the dynamics, which is the storm. At some point, the group you know, gets into its groove and gets productive. That's the norm. And then they start making real headway, which is perform. And so even the storm of coming together as a new group happens in day two. It occupies the middle space. People find all kinds of ways to, in creative ways, I will say, to resist the difficulty of day two. So these trainings that we had, we're always in San Antonio at a hotel on the Riverwalk. And so, you know, we would always tell people, okay, watch the margarita consumption at lunch, we're going to ask you not to drink while you're in the program, because you need to be clear headed and clear eyed. And you need to check into what it is that you want to numb what it is that what's hard that's going on for you. And it's really funny. Because No matter how many times we did that training there, and we probably did it 30 times, day two was always just painful. Until we could, until we started naming it and we would get up in the morning. We all, all the facilitators would meet for breakfast and we're like, okay, good morning. Welcome to day two. Welcome. We're in day two. We're in day two. And everyone would like, you know, do some yoga stretching and, you know, have a healthy breakfast. And we'd be kinder and gentler with each other because we knew it was going to be hard. And it's funny because the therapists that we trained that went on to do group work they would always tell us when they were leaving you know what i'm going to do 3 day intensives with my clients but i what well, i'll get back with you and give you some feedback about how you know how you can actually avoid the day two-ness of all this and they would always write back and say oh my god day two sucks oh my, there's no way it's just the middle it's the middle and here's you know here's the saying here's the sentence for us the middle is messy but it's also where all the magic happens, all the tension that creates goodness and learning. You know, there's interesting research that says if learning's not uncomfortable, you're not really learning. Like this is the seat of discomfort is in day two. You know, so again, for all of us who were facilitating these three day intensives, we harnessed our superpowers. We learned how to manage it and. It's funny because it's very similar to the process that I shared on my very first podcast about how do you get through effing first times? How do you get through that really weird first exercise class or that really weird first effort to do something that you've never done before? And it follows the same pattern, which is just a pattern I think that we can pick up in our lives in general. Name it. Normalize it put it in perspective, then reality check expectations. You know, if we expected everyone to have the same, you know, excitement level and buzz as they did on day one, are the same anticipation and you know, feeling of accomplishment they did on day three, we would get into this cycle of thinking, oh my God, we're failing at this training and something's wrong with them. And, you know, we would probably gear up our energy, which would make people even more day two y. Like, you know, so again, name it, normalize it, put it in perspective and reality check expectations around it. It's funny because day two or whatever that middle space is for your own process is when we're in the dark. The doors close behind us, we're too far in to turn around and not close enough to the end to see the light. In my work with the military and veterans, they talk about this kind of dark middle piece as the point of no return. It's an aviation term coined by pilots for the point in the flight where you have too little fuel to turn around and return to the originating airfield. So you have to go forward. It's strangely universal. And it goes all the way back, this kind of saying about the point of no return actually tracks all the way back to Julius Caesar's famous, the die is cast, which was spoken in 49 BC, as he and his troops made the river crossing that you know started a huge war. And I think that okay, this is I think this is crossing the Rubicon. I think that's the Rubicon River. I think in Italy was actually because I've heard people refer to the point of no return as also we've crossed the Rubicon now, and it's really funny because the saying I don't I can't pronounce it. I'll give it my shot. In iacta alia est, the die is cast. When I you know up until I heard that you know for I think for decades I thought the die has been cast like like when you're dying a piece of fabric, but it's a die as in the the singular version of dice, like one cube and you've thrown it and it's rolling, but it doesn't matter now because it's been cast. Like it's, you know, your, your future is set now because that stuff is already in motion. It's, you know, whether it's an ancient battle strategy or the creative process or, you know, a pandemic, at some point, we are we're in the dark. There's no turning back. The only way is forward. And all the time, you know, most of the time we can't see what that way is. Otherwise, it wouldn't be anxiety producing to be in the middle. We're in day two. We're in day two of the pandemic. We're in day two of the long overdue racial reckoning. You know, we'll start with the pandemic. There's no turning around. There's there's only going forward. And we have no idea how long or how far we're going to need to go. And my prediction is that September, October, and November are going to be hard as hell. Um, Here's why. September, believe it or not, is our new year. As much as we'd like to think that January is the restart for us, it is not in publishing they call january the you know the new year new you and that's where they slot new year new you books or magazines say it's new year new you let's run all the stuff that's about you know new year's resolutions and expectations that are going to leave us in shame shitstorms but that's all that stuff is driven by this this idea that january is the new year new you but really for most of us the tuesday after labor day is launch go time like that is just in our wiring to be like time to go back. You know, the kids are in school, they've got their shiny notebooks, they're all set, they're still excited. There's not too much homework yet. We're back at work after the summer schedule weirdness. We slip into this rhythm and this rhythm is like as much a part of us as I don't know, the 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 circadian rhythm that, you know, that internal process that regulates our sleeping waking cycle that repeats, you know, every 24 hours. We're wired for September like I'm wired to stand and kneel at Catholic Church. Like, you know, I just up, down, communion, pass the peace, you know, like I'm a liturgical girl. Like, we are wired for it that way. My gut, and I, and I hope I'm wrong, is that our desire to get back to normal, that yearning, that is just wired in us, will override what probably makes sense for us to do in terms of containing the virus and continuing to distance and mask. You know, Texas was in a crisis a couple of months ago, and our leaders, slow, slow, um, finally got serious about masks and social distancing. And containment now is within our reach in this state, which, you know, it was horrendous here. And mostly, honestly, due to the politicizing of COVID safety measures. Um, but I'm not sure we can stay in containment like we are now. I mean, if we could, we could safely figure out how to go back to school, we could safely figure out how to move around. And I do believe we need to think and act and work seriously to get schools back and, and, and kids back in connection, but not at the peril of vi- you know virus containment. Otherwise, we just go back into lockdown again, and it gets worse. I think what will probably, and this is just, I'm embarrassed to say this out loud, but I'm going to say it, but I think at least in my state, which, you know, as Molly Ivan said, I love Texas dearly, but I only discuss it among consenting adults feel the same way. I'm a Texan, fifth generation. I think we'll start making really bad decisions around football. So I think what we'll see is containment, easing back in, and then the inability and the lack of willpower to stay. And so I think we're going to get whipped around a lot, Like, like, you know, the roller coasters that you ride that are in the dark, And the hardest thing about them is that you can't anticipate the turns or the falls. And so, you know, you're just like in total lock from head to toe. I think we're going to get whipped around a lot around going to school, coming back, being able to do some more stuff, that being taken away. And I think that's going to be hard when you integrate that with our September, let's go back and launch inner cycle. I think we're also going to be trying to figure out work and childcare and job searches, and the whipping around is going to lead to probably some low-grade anxiety and depression from disconnection. We're in day two. You know, we just can't turn around now. We've got to go forward, but we can't see where we're going, (laughs) Yeah. Here's the analogy. We're on the space mountain ride. This is the perfect analogy. It's like you just cannot anticipate the turns and the drops and the climbs. And we're in that part where like the voice comes on, you're already strapped in and it's moving forward. And even though you want to scream, hey, I have to change my mind too late, like you're on the ride. We're on the ride. In terms of the fight for racial justice, mercifully, there's no turning back. We have to move forward and no one knows exactly what that means, what it's going to take or what it's going to look like. We just know that it is so long overdue. It is the right thing to do and it's going to happen. And I think there are a lot of us, you know, I put myself in that group, like there's no turning back now. You know, I, I am only sad that it took, uh, it took so many Americans so much time to realize the pain and trauma and injustice. But now that we've seen it and we've known it, this kind of let's go back to normal, this is consuming too much of my bandwidth is no. That's just no. I love um, one of the people that I And have interviewed for this season of the podcast is a poet, writer, activist, Sonia Renee Taylor. And you'll get to hear a podcast in a couple of weeks. And she wrote something that's so beautiful. She writes, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. Like that's where we are but we don't know what that's going to look like. And just by definition, that's anxiety producing. Beautiful, true, and hard, and unknown, day two.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So
0: what do we do about this challenging convergence of day twos? Well, this is for me where Pixar and Joseph Campbell come into play. So several years ago, I spent the day at Pixar. I did a talk for all the Pixar employees. I worked with a small group of people around a specific film. And then I had lunch with Ed Catmull, um, who at the time headed up both Pixar and Disney Animation, and some of the leaders at Pixar, mostly producers, directors, animators, and writers. And you have to understand that this experience was like a dream come true for me. I am such a Pixar fan. I'm such a Disney fan. I just, when they called to ask if I'd be interested in in going, I, I li- all I could think of is, oh my god, I should wear my Jessie cowgirl outfit. That would be so fun. Steve was like, uh, no, no, I don't think you should. I'm like, I could go as Dory just keep swimming, just keep swimming. He's like, just no. uh. Uh-uh. And Ed Catmull, his book, Creativity Inc., was life altering for me. It was just profound. And I've since developed a relationship with Ed and we're friends and he's mentored me on really important aspects of, of storytelling. So this Pixar experience was huge for me. So at lunch this day, our conversation was really focused on this unavoidable uncertainty and vulnerability of the creative process. And these filmmakers were explaining how frustrating it is that absolutely no amount of experience or success gives you a free pass from this daunting level of doubt that is a part of filmmaking. And as they were talking, I was thinking, day two? Sounds like day two. This is, I think they're talking about day two. This is day two. And all of a sudden, I just looked at Ed and said, Oh my God, I totally relate to this. I get this. You can't skip day two. And Ed immediately knew that I got it, what I, that I what I was talking about. And we were completely connected. And he smiled and, you know, in a way that was like, right, you can't skip the middle. As we wrapped up our lunch conversation at Pixar, one of the writers in the room shared an observation about our discussion. And this is after me explaining day two. And he said, you know, day two is like the second act in a three act story. It's always the toughest for our teams. It's where we struggle with our characters and our narrative arc. Everyone in the room was like, oh my God, yes. It was just like, oh, day two, act two, so tough. When I got back to Houston, I got this great email from Ed that said, man, you know, just that day two conversation sent a jolt through our room and through Pixar. And I couldn't stop thinking about the connection between day two and act two in in storytelling. So I emailed Darla Anderson, a producer that I had met at Pixar, who's behind, you know, some of my favorite films, Toy Story Three, Monsters Inc., A Bug's Life, Cars, and oh my God, my all-time favorite Pixar film by far, Coco. And I asked her if she could help me understand how they think about at Pixar the traditional three-act structure of storytelling. Um, And I thought, you know, maybe if I learn about storytelling, I can crack this day to misery. And, you know, I I have read a lot about storytelling, Um, everything from the neuroscience of storytelling and screenwriting. Just I knew there was an answer in here. So Darla explained that act one. Think about this is where the protagonist, the main character, you know, is called to an adventure or called into a journey, accepts the adventure, and the rules of the world are established. So when I say the rules of the world are established, it means that we understand kind of the landscape of things. We understand what the rules are. We understand, oh, okay, in Black Panther, Wakanda's hidden away. Oh, but they've got a material source That people are after, so there's something valuable, and but the world doesn't know. Like we start to understand kind of what the rules are. Act one is also the inciting at the very end of Act One, the inciting incident. That's when, oh, the shit hits the fan, something really hard happens. So listen to what act two is, which I think is so interesting. Act two is where the protagonist looks for every comfortable way to solve the problem, every easy way to solve the problem, every way to solve the problem that does not require the hero's vulnerability. How can I solve it without being vulnerable? And it's not until the lowest of the low moment happens where our protagonist, our hero, realizes, I can't solve the problem without vulnerability. We go to act three, which is where the protagonist learns the lesson, proves that that she has learned the lesson, you know, proves it at all costs, which is primarily vulnerability. And it's all about redemption, our character has gone on this journey, has learned about the importance of, has, has had horrible trials and tribulations, but has learned about the value of stripping it all down and putting yourself out there and being brave and vulnerable. So when I read this from Darla, my first thought was like, oh, my God, holy crap, this is Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. You know, Joseph Campbell, American scholar, professor, writer, best known for his work on comparative mythology and religion. And Campbell found that countless myths from different times and cultures all around the world share this fundamental stage and structure, which he calls the hero's journey, or some people call it the monomyth, like one, one myth and it came back to me because this this whole idea is introduced in a book called the hero with Thou- with a thousand faces which you know every jungian and joseph campbell book was on my mom's bookshelf in the 70s probably your mom's bookshelf or your bookshelf or your family's bookshelf as well and you know i read all of these in my 20s reread them in my 30s and so i'm like oh my god storytelling and how we handle stories this is, this can help us because we're in the middle of a story and we can't get through the end until we're vulnerable. You know, I asked, I shot an email back to Darla and said, Hey, is my Joseph Campbell comparison on target? And she said, yeah, we referenced Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey at the beginning of every film, which is so cool. Like who knew that? That's like a, what's that thing called in films? An uh, Easter egg, you know? As the protagonist in the story of the pandemic, as a protagonist in the story for the fight for racial justice, we can continue to try to solve the crisis in every way that we can imagine that doesn't involve being vulnerable and real, or we can understand that there's really no way to solve day two until we get vulnerable faster. Maybe we can keep the lowest of the low from happening, although I think it's already happened and it continues to happen. You know, in sobriety, in sobriety, we call that a high bottom, looking for the high bottom. Like, do you really have to, you know, end up almost dead or in jail before you realize there's a problem? Like, can we accelerate our commitment to just being real and vulnerable and saying, God, we're in day two, but we're not turning back and not turning back is okay? because we have a fight to fight in front of us. And in order to get there, we're going to have to strip it all down and get really deeply messy human. When we look at our lives right now, our work, our family, our faith, our friends, what would it mean to get a little bit more honest and a little bit more human and vulnerable right now? What would we say or ask for? You know, I think around race, the most vulnerable thing we could do collectively right now is own the truth of our history, our brutal story of slavery, of the systems that were built to support the dehumanization of people. If it, if we could say we're at the point of no return, thank God, let's just take it all off and get honest. What would happen? How much faster? And how much more effectively could we stop the brutality and make change? I think what sucks and what's the hardest part about day two is exactly what Ed and the Pixar team pointed out, that it's a non-negotiable part of the process. Whether it's a pandemic or an uprising or a difficult process at work, a fight with with our partners, experience does not give us easy passage through the middle space. I want to say that again. No matter what the middle is, experience does not give us easy passage through struggle. Experience only grants us a little grace that whispers, this is a part of the process. Stay the course. Stay the course. We're in day two, friends. And again, (laughs) experience doesn't even give us a little spark of light in this mess right now. It only gives us a little bit of faith that we can navigate it together. You know, most of the time when we're in complete darkness, we wave our arms around to reach out and grab someone who can walk with us, you know, to get our bearings, to give us perspective, to hold on to. I think it's that time, you know, the middle is messy, but it's also where the magic happens. If we believe in ourselves, if we reach out together, and if we lean into a little bit of that grace that says, we can get through this. I'm so grateful for the podcast. I'm grateful to be back. I think we are in the messy middle and I think we have to to unlock the path. We have to unlock people and then we have to unlock ourselves. I hope this is I hope this is what we do together with unlocking us. Thank you for listening and again, I'm so grateful to be reconnected. And um, I was going to say walking with you through this, but stumbling in the dark with you reaching out for each other. Grateful. Unlocking Us is produced by Brene Brown Education and Research Group. The music is by Kerry Rodriguez and Gina Chavez. Get new episodes as soon as they're published by following Unlocking Us on your favorite podcast app. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more award winning shows at podcasts.voxmedia.com.